all of the infrastructures of residency that attempt to impose a format, a disciplinary sameness, a means of incarceration, can sometimes, not always, but sometimes be turned inside out. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of this UCL podcast, Exploring Black Urbanisms, presented by myself, Dr. Alana Osborne. Across this series, I've been examining Professor Abdul Malik Simone's presentation on blackness and the urban, and exploring his concepts to think through the racialized city. We would like to clarify that the authentic way to pronounce his name is Abdul Malik Simone. However, to keep in line with the pronunciation of his name in other audio excerpts, and to ensure clarity for who is being referenced, we will be using Abdul Malik Simone across the series. In this episode, I'm going to unpack another key articulation from Professor Simone about blackness and the urban as a form of unsettling. I'll also be engaging with more scholars from the UCL conference at which he presented his thoughts. As we heard in the previous episodes, blackness in its urban contexts can take different forms. To refresh our memories, let's begin with a short extract from Professor Simone's talk. In some ways, Black urbanism as manifested through what we might think of as different forms of black cities can take many different kinds of forms, many different kinds of uh, man manifestations. It can assume the miles and miles of faceless homogenous buildings at the periphery. It can, it can take the form of gutted and reconfigured insides of large scale housing projects. It's super blocks where floors are seized by brokers and extended families, gangs, religious associations for all kinds of uses. So in some sense, what you see isn't necessarily what you get. Again, this notion of thresholds, of, of the notion of being able to operate within the, within the, within the ethos of, of, of configuring deception, of, of doing things on the run, of a fugitivity that's not settled. So a connotation of what things can be used for that ne not necessarily formatted, not necessarily, not necessarily settled. So this I take from Fred Moten, which in, in, in some sense is part of this notion of, of, of the relationship of things being settled and unsettled. And Fred Moten asks is basically, what, how is it to think without a standpoint? That is, how does it think without being in some sense a defined position? without being categorized, without being in place, without being settled. What does it mean? What, is it, what does it mean to operate from that kind of, kind of position? What does that have to say then for a, a reality where more and more urban residents find themselves living in a context of being fundamentally unsettled? I want to explore how we can interpret this notion of inhabiting without settling to experience place through passings and thresholds in the context of African cities. I'm an anthropologist. I've done work on dance and music in urban Senegal, and I now work on marriage migration between Senegal and Europe. To do this, I'm speaking with Dr. Helene Neveu-Kringelbach, who's an associate professor of African studies at UCL. She was also a respondent to Professor Simone at the 2019 conference panel on black urbanisms. Thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Kringleback. First, I'd like to share the comments you presented at the conference with our listeners. Specifically, the excerpt we've chosen is a discussion around your research in Dakar. It struck me that when talking about the Libu populations of Senegal, 
and Dakar in particular, you were giving us a really powerful example of how a people might renegotiate a history of displacement and unsettlement. Let's hear that clip. So thinking those terms about exclusion, people being um, pushed to the margins um, in very real ways, what I've been wondering about is how do people actually, in those uh, contexts that I know of, how do they respond to this and how do they respond to other processes of exclusions from um, cities? What is the extent of their agency? Looking at some of the ways in which people in African cities in particular have responded to displacement and the loss of space over long periods of time perhaps has important things to tell us about resilience. But I was thinking in particular about the way in which um, people very often uh, go to um, great length and are in very creative ways asserting the memory of past practices in urban spaces which have disappeared uh, or urban spaces which have been on by populations with no memory of these practices. So an example I was thinking about is the Lebu uh, populations who uh, say they are the or original inhabitants of the Cape Verde Peninsula on which Dakar is located in West Africa and who have through a long process of uh, dispossession during the colonial period and then in the post-colonial period have lost uh, property and ownership of land. What they do then is to continue to perform, to use performative practices like dance and music to claim, if not actual ownership, at least spiritual ownership of the city. And people do this uh, through, um, for example, harvest um, rituals through spirit possession practices which are still carried out in key uh, spaces within Dakar, seven particular spaces which are said to be the seven original villages and which are said to be particularly important mm -hmm. to continue to preserve the spiritual um, and material well-being of the city. And they do this um, with such, um, in such an effective way that although this has not perhaps resulted in actual return of, uh, of property, at least it means that politically in Dakar, in Senegal more generally, this population, the label, cannot be ignored. No important decision can be taken regarding the city without actually consulting representatives of that community. Were you suggesting here that we might read performative practices, such as the dance or music of the Lebu people in Dakar that you describe, as a means of negotiating unsettlement, or even to think of blackness as what refuses to disappear? Performance ritual is absolutely a way of negotiating unsettlement, because the power to perform in order to protect a space and to ensure that it continues to be healthy and to protect its vitality over the long run, that power then can be translated into political power. That is very much the case in Dakar. There are Lebu traditional authorities which form part of the governance of the city. And every time important decisions are taken about uh, redeveloping some parts of the city, for example, or building a bridge or building roads, that cannot be done without consulting the Lebu and without their 
their their concept, and that I think fits very well with this multiplicity of strategies which Professor Simone is talking about. People continue to regard the label as the guardians of the land. And I think the way they've done this has been by continuing to perform particular rituals in specific places in the city as a way of asserting their ownership, if not in practice, if not materially, at least in spiritual ways. And there's something very powerful in that. So I've been very inspired by the work of uh, Carola Lentz, for example, who's worked in northern Ghana and southern Burkina Faso, and who has shown that there is a lot to be said for revising ideas about pre-colonial communal land ownership in Africa. She says that the idea that somehow land ownership did not exist uh, formally or that it was exclusively communal needs to be revised in the light of other ideas about ownership. Having the rights to perform certain rituals in order to preserve the land's sustainability, that also was uh, a very valued form of ownership. And I do think there is historical continuity in these ideas. They really force us to rethink what land ownership is about. And I think they could also inform a rethink of ownership in Europe, in other parts of the world, because perhaps in other parts of the world, there is also this idea that ownership isn't just a question of having the papers to a piece of land, but that it might also be a question of having a more invisible power to ensure sustainability of that land in the longer term. Rethinking land ownership in this way really connects to how we've been exploring Professor Simone's notion of the hallucination of whiteness or this illusion of formal settlement. Are creative practices then what Simone sees emerging through the cracks? And how does this fit into what you've observed in Dakar? I, th I think the, 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 the way in which Professor Simone describes how people creatively use the margins to keep living fits very well with what I've seen in Dakar. And in fact, I see his use of the term blackness more as a metaphor. There are uh, commonalities in ways in the ways people have used different strategies to live at the margins. And I, to me, this is what this metaphor does. It signals that there are commonalities everywhere. But that is not the only perspective. And I think that in... In, in, in many African cities where people have been dispossessed, have been unsettled, but continue to find ways of asserting their rights in, in other ways, from their perspective, they're not actually at the margins when they engage in those practices. I don't think labor people would see themselves as being reduced to emerge through the cracks I think that on the contrary, they believe quite rightly, I think, that they are the ones who sustain the identity of Dakar as a coherent place. And there's 
a sense in which they are the ones who prevent this uh, space from descending into complete chaos. So even though materially they're no longer at the center of ownership, I think that in other ways the labels see themselves very much as central to what makes Dakar what it is and to the place's sustainability. I really like how you reposition the margins or the practices Professor Simone identifies as emerging through the cracks as the glue that holds urban space together. In that way, spaces that have been theorized as the margins or even the periphery are actually central to the city. Tying this back to blackness would mean that blackness then, in all of its declinations, is essential to any urban formation. That seems like a really vital point to make about cities. Thank you so much for sharing your research and ideas with us. I now turn to the work of Victoria Okoye, who's a PhD candidate within the School of Architecture and Department of Urban Studies and Planning at the University of Sheffield. At the UCL conference, Victoria presented in a session entitled Urban Studies Starting in Africa, Land and Urban Conflict. In her presentation, she described the aim of her ongoing research as an attempt to theorize young people's embodied experiences of public space and everyday power relations in Accra, Ghana, through black critical thought. Here's a selected clip from that section. Good afternoon. Uh, my presentation today shares reflections from ongoing collaborative research with Spread Out Initiative, which is an NGO based in the Nima neighborhood of Accra in Ghana. So I try to draw connections between young people's everyday experiences as they describe them, collaborative reflections with SOI, Spread Out Initiative team members, and critical black theorists' work to contextualize spatial transformation in Nima as enacted through everyday space-making practices. And this is to, to begin to theorize how a particular group of young people move, make place, and imagine in constrained spatial conditions. So through images, photos, and text, uh, these young people describe their fears of navigating these remaining community spaces. So the threats and memories of kidnappings, thefts, fights, sexual harassments, and other violences in the Lungus, the vendor-appropriated sidewalk pavements that push them into the streets on their walks to school, their trepidations around using these streets for fear of being hit by motorbikes or even other vehicles. So these young people critique their environment and also use everyday knowledge and resourcefulness to initiate their own makeshift solutions. They imagine and act in ways unintended and unforeseen by government planners and designers or other dominant forces. And we connect these in turn to the numerous ways that black peoples in various contexts are continually navigating built-in social structures that would mark them as out of place. SOIT members articulate this imagining and acting otherwise as magic. The human mental creativity and the operation of agency in order to make things happen, not necessarily to physically change one's environment, but to bring about a change of one's experience within that environment. I love this notion of imagining and acting otherwise as being a form of magic. I think it also speaks to Lioba's work on black encounters as offering space for imagination and Helene's work on what performative practices operate, what they enable. Going back to Professor Simone's notion of blackness as a form of sociality, I think that Helene and Victoria's work reveals that this is first and foremost a creative way of dealing with urban changes, insecurities and unsettlement. In that sense, blackness is a vibrant and fundamental dimension 
of Urban Life. This has been episode three of the UCL Urban Laboratory podcast. On the next episode, Black Urbanisms and Theorizing from Africa. This podcast was presented by myself, Dr. Alana Osborne from the Free University in Brussels. Claire Melhuish is the UCL Urban Laboratory Director and was the podcast coordinator on this series. Jennifer Robinson is the UCL Urban Laboratory Co-Director and curator of the two conference sessions mentioned in this series. Special thanks to Jordan Rowe, UCL Urban Laboratory Center Manager, and Kamna Patel, Vice Dean of Equality, Diversity and Inclusion for the Bartlett Faculty. The producer was Deborah Sharinde. The executive producer was Anishka Sharma. This was a Whistledown production for the UCL Urban Laboratory. Thank you.